prior to the collapse of FTX, there was hope um, that maybe we can get some new legislation through the Congress. Maybe there could be a joint bipartisan bill to get a hold of this industry. Obviously, we all know that uh, FTX was spending tons of money trying to lobby Congress and get some sort of pro-crypto legislation through. FTX collapses, and then I think many lawmakers threw up their hands. You're going to see this continued flurry of litigation activity over the next six months. In order to earn money in the past, you have always had to relinquish that money either in an equity form or in a loan form. And in Lightning, you can earn money without giving the money, right? You assign the money to a liquidity network secured by smart contracts, secured by your own Bitcoin node. And it really is truly unprecedented. What's up, Sats fans? Welcome to Swan Signal. My name is Sam Callahan. I am your host today. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects, as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Swan Signal. I'm your host, Sam Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swan Bitcoin. We've got a great show uh, lined up for you guys today. Um, we got Mr. Nick Batia. He's the founder of the Bitcoin Layer and the author of Layered Money. I got that book right here. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I read it early on and I reread it. I love the diagrams in it. Um, and then I got Joe Calasari, who's a partner at Amundsen Davis and a legal correspondent now at the Bitcoin Layer. So congratulations for joining um, and joining the show, guys. It's, it's great to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. And, and welcome to the show. And, uh, you know, first off, Nick, dude, I was watching your cousin over the weekend crush it in Puerto Rico earning his tour card, man. Congrats to him. Congrats to the family. That is super cool, man. Thank you. Yes, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I watched it live with my dad and my brother and the three of us were, um, just going nuts. His chip in, uh, four birdies to end it. And, um, crazy. and yeah, now he has a, a special exemption for the rest of the year on tour and hopefully he can, use a few starts to secure his tour, you know, his tour card for 2024 and beyond. Yeah. And for those who don't know, he is a professional golfer and it's uh, Nick's cousin and it's a big deal. So uh, congrats to him. Um, so let's get into it. I wanted to talk about a lot of different things. want to talk macro, obviously Bitcoin, regulatory updates. We got Joe here, who's a lawyer. And uh, so we want to take advantage of his expertise there. Um, this morning, Jerome Powell testified before Congress, um, semi-annual uh, time where the, the federal chairman comes in and testifies before Congress. And he basically said that inflationary pressures remain hotter. He said that in order to bring inflation down, they'll likely have to keep rates higher for longer and that it will be, quote unquote, bumpy. Um, you know, the market is now not expecting any rate cuts in 2023 after this, after he testified um, they're also, we saw like the two year yield kind of spike during the, the testimony. And so I just wanted to get your guys comments, just like, uh, initial takeaways from that testimony. Uh, maybe I'll throw it to Nick and then, and then get Joe's comments. Sure. So yes, uh, we see the fed continue to signal for higher for longer. That's the mantra that they've been on for several months now. And front end yields have re- repriced accordingly. Um, when they broke four and a half and terminal was already north of five, it was pretty clear that going from four and a half to five in the front end is something that would naturally occur just to uh, just due to where policy rates will be um, in a few weeks and then a few weeks from then. Uh, But I think one of the main signals, one of the main takeaways I have is the continued flattening of the curve. So an overall reluctance for longer term investors to sell 10, 20 and 30 year treasuries uh, yields are still hanging in around 4% on the long end of the curve, making the curve about 100 basis points inverted. And that is just a very strong signal, the market telling you that, yes, we are going to see higher policy rates, 
but we still don't think that higher growth and inflation expectations um, are baked into the market on the much longer term horizon. And so that's where I see it. Also, just thinking about risk assets really quickly, the S&P is right smack dab in the middle of this range that it's been trading in for the last you know, year, essentially. And there's a big battle going on between bulls and bears, and no side has come out uh, and can claim victory right now. So we have higher policy rates, but risk assets basically hanging in. And um, but, you know, that could turn on at any time. And um, we really have to watch this area and see if uh, stocks uh, break down. And if they do, um, you know, I expect long end yields to actually come down alongside stocks, which is not what we had last year. Joe, do you got any comments? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to look at the comments today, and I was only reading them. I didn't see his body language, which sometimes in the uh, uh, aspect of the Fed, body language is everything. But uh, I was, I think it's interesting that his comments, Powell's comments today, uh, came in what I would view as a marked contrast to what he said at the beginning of February. You'll remember that when he had that press conference, he seemed resolute with this uh, narrative and talking point about the disinflationary process has started. Uh, then uh, subsequent to that, we had that sort of uh, NFP number, which, you know, we all know there's there's issues with that, you know, the seasonality aspect of it. But I thought it was fascinating because then he was given another chance to sort of correct that or walk it back, effectively say, would you have done a bigger hike uh, subsequent to that? Had you known you're going to get this blowout number in, which I think they did know the number, they still said, we're going to hold Pat with the, the, the modest 25 bit hike. But ultimately, what I think now is I think that they're sort of um, at least there's a potential for the reacceleration of another 50. I think the market was pricing that in. I think they could go a lot further still than the market anticipates. And I think that this is the first salvo in Powell sort of laying the groundwork perhaps to go even higher than where the market's currently pricing. Um, I don't know if Nick has any thoughts on that, but I, it, to me, uh, it's difficult to reconcile the comments both at the last FOMC pro presser and the, the Washington um, conference where he spoke with these comments today. Um, it seems to be at least trying to uh, at least telegraph to the market um, that we need to be a little bit more aggressive, that we're not as uh, acceptable, we're not ex uh, as happy with some of the progress they've made. Um, I don't know, just my read on it. Yeah, no, it seems like things changed a lot in a month. Yeah. Um, you know, I felt like he was almost at a premature victory over inflation. He, I think he mentioned disinflation like over 10 times yes. in the last FOMC presser. And now the the market is pri like pricing in a probability about 50% that they will hike 50 basis points next FOMC meeting. And a month ago, that was only the probability was around 10%. So, you know, definitely things have changed. And maybe it's because, you know, core PCE came in hotter. These inflation numbers are coming in hotter. Um, but you mentioned that people think maybe the federal funds rate can get even higher than people think today. And yeah. that was a big thing all last year, right? Everyone was like, well, they can't raise it too high. The debt, you know, they can't get it up there. But I think it surprised a lot of people. So, Joe, like how high do you think that they can get the federal funds rate? And, and what are some of their uh, constraints there? It's really a, a, a guess at this point, right? No one, no one can give you that clear yeah. data. But um, you have to think of things that would we act as a... Uh, as a check on that, what would what would prevent the rates from going higher? And some of the indications that I look at show that consumers still are spending. Um, there's been some modest uh, declines in certain metrics, but nothing particularly alarming. No, what I would call red flags. Um, you still see credit growth. I mean, I think January had one of the highest numbers for private sector borrowing um, among companies, particularly among high yield. Uh, that's interesting because, you know, it doesn't seem like the banks are unwilling to lend. So, you know, I still think we've had sort of this uh, implicit sort of bias that, whoa, they can't hike, they can't keep hiking really when realistically, you know, I think that there's there's this cross currents between some of the stimulus policies that are out there and um, even like things you don't think of a lot. Like one of the uh, I was listening to a comment here talk about how, you know, the CPI adjustments to Social Security as well as to taxation effectively are providing additional stimulus. Um, just think about every Social Security recipient in the country got that cost of living increase. That is what, six, seven percent increase uh, that they're going to use to be able to spend. I mean, you've got yeah. liquidity being provided by some sources abroad. 
uh, which I think is, uh, again, running counter to the Fed's efforts. And it was almost, uh, going back a second to what Powell said, it was interesting to me how he seemed to at least be suggesting that the they don't look at liquidity conditions in the short run. They're looking more in the long term. He said that at the last FOMC conference, which I think was fascinating. It's almost like a um, why was he unwilling to at least acknowledge what we all know, which is liquidity conditions seem to have uh, gotten better since at least the end of last year. Uh, so I don't know what what would, what would prevent them from going higher. I mean, listen, if everything keeps humming along, why wouldn't they raise rates higher? I mean, that's the thing. Uh, you have to see a significant uh, uptick in unemployment, which again everybody keeps saying is coming. Maybe we'll get it by the you know end of this quarter, uh, which is this this month. Maybe you'll start to see that number pick up. But I don't know. Um, you know, I don't I don't yeah. know why the market consistently tries to get to this uh, ahead of itself when it's saying, oh, the the terminal rates in or we're close to being in. It seems to be the constant folly of traders for the last six months. Yeah, Nick, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, uh, Joe makes great points. I want to think about the Fed's mandate, right? So the Fed has a dual mandate, and we all know that they've been pretty single-minded for the past year plus in terms of where their attention is, right? They're focused on the price level, and they're focused on bringing it down. Now, the other side is the employment mandate. And when I think about where nominal rates are and think about how punitive these higher rates are going to be to the housing sector in particular. We see that we've had over a half a year of month over month declines in housing prices. We're now at on a six month annualized rate negative nationwide across all 20 cities in the case Schiller. So if you'll allow me to get into the nuance of a specific fixed income uh, issue here, so think about higher nominal rates of the treasury curve, right? That's going to drive mortgage rates higher. But what are some of the other factors that influence the spread between the rate that mortgage borrowers or home borrowers are paying and the treasury yield? Okay. Some of those factors include a volatility component, right? And so that volatility component rates volatility specifically in mortgage-backed securities, it's not being sucked out of the market by the Fed in QE. It's the opposite. Now, there's not a lot of runoff in mortgage-backed securities from the Fed's balance sheet because rates have gone up. So there are less people that are willing to refi their mortgage. Obviously, if your rate is higher today than what you paid, you're not going to refi your mortgage. And it slows down the runoff of mortgage-backed securities from the Fed's portfolio. But the fact that they're not in the market and suppressing that volatility and being a buyer of mortgages is naturally going to widen the spread that people actually have to pay when they go to purchase a home. And all of that is going to combine to a slowing housing market. The housing market is 25% of the U.S. economy, and it does filter in through employment numbers, construction, and all the like. So when I think about how high the Fed can get in terms of their policy rate, I'm not necessarily thinking, okay, are they going to hike one, two, or three, or four more times? I'm more thinking about at what point is the inflection point for the Fed to stop thinking in a single mandate way and start thinking in a dual mandate way. And that'll probably just come with either one or two consecutive NFP prints that raise the eyebrow, and then the Fed has to stop and, and go the other way. And if they go too far up, they'll have to actually cut versus if they were to pause now, they could let, and you know use this word I've been using, let the market digest what is happening. So that's my, that's my overall outlook here on policy yeah. rates. Can I ask a question on that, Sam? For Nick? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So, Nick, what do you, what do you have to say about this um, this idea that's been bandied about about how you know yes you've seen some deterioration in the real estate market, but it appears that you know you have sort of a standoff between the buyers and the sellers, and you don't see significant supply coming on, and that this is this has contributed to a frozen market, right? You don't have the sellers willing to take a fire sale and discount the prices. You don't have the buyers that are going to willing to to put this, and you really uh, you have sort of this huge bid ask spread. Um, that that is materializing in the real estate market, which is just freezing uh, things. Do do you give any credence to that? Well, I I factor it in, but the prices are less important necessarily than the churn because the churn is what drives spending and employment. And if people are building and people are supplying the homes with the raw materials, then that keeps the economy going, even if prices are declining. But if the market is slowing, then the churn st- the churn slows itself and can slow down the economy. So sometimes I feel like we're looking too narrow at a couple hot PCE prints and missing this overall trend that the economy at the center, meaning housing, like one of the main components of the U.S. economy, is broadly going to encounter a year to two to three year slowdown. And if it's not severe, then we can maybe avoid a a really bad recession. But if it's severe, you're talking about a a deep recession, rate cuts and all that. And that could only be 12 months away. And we just don't necessarily see it materializing yet. But I'm, I'm, I'm focused more on that than like how high they can get policy rates over the next three to six months, because the curve is telling me the deep, deep inversion of the curve is telling me that longer term fixed income investors are not actually worried about a couple hot PCE prints. They're they're flat out not worried about it. Let me just bring one last bond math thing here. If you think about yields at 4% in um, the short end of the curve with a duration of two years, if rates were to go up by two and a half percent, so from five to seven and a half percent, your price of your bond would go from 100 to 95 and you would get that 5% coupon and actually end up at par. So rates could go up 2.5% on your two-year bond over the next year and you would break even on the investment. That's a powerful carry. It's a powerful reason to own the front end of the curve. On the longer end, in a 10-year, rates at 4%, if rates go up 40 basis points, let's say a duration of 10 Rates go up 40 basis points from 4 to 4.4 over the next year. You break even on your 10-year bond because you get that 4% in coupon and you lost 4% in price, so you break even. So you have a, a lot less room to worry about rates going up. But despite that, we have a 100 basis point inversion in the yield curve. Investors are still willing to buy the 10-year much lower with much more rate sensitivity. So the deep inversion is the main signal, not necessarily like how high front end yields can get. And that's, you know, just how I'm thinking about the market. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, average 30 year mortgage rates are back above seven. And a lot of these people, I, I forgot the number, but a lot of them have these fixed mortgages that they did over the last two, three years, super low. So they're just why would you move? You know, why would you move and pay that extra mortgage? So that that could just kind of grind to a halt. And Joe, to your point, like this is all anecdotal, but I know multiple people throughout major cities in the United States who work really um, a lot in real estate, and they've said that exact same thing. It's like the faucets just turned off. Yeah. And so that's it's anecdotal, but um, you know what? I, what I think about with the housing as well is over the last CPI print it said about fifty percent of the price increases came from the shelter component from from owner's equivalent rent. Um, and that's a lagging metric. And so we know that the house prices that Nick just said are falling. So is, does that create a scenario where we could have like a trapdoor effect and have disinflationary pressures over the next six to 12 months as this housing market kind of starts to show up in the CPI? Do you guys think that's possible? Nick, why don't you go on that one? <laughs> you know, the housing component of inflation is um, there's two sides of the coin, right? There's the the rental side and then there's the housing market side. And so 
with you know less supply that can drive rents up right and then obviously with a slowdown in housing itself it can bring the economy down and bring overall demand down which brings inflation down so it's it's really tough to tell uh you know which is going to dominate and you know um we just have to watch continue to watch the data and see which force is stronger on the market is it a tight supply and higher rent or is it a you know 7% mortgages causing a legitimate slowdown in the US economy broadly and that is in my base case of expectations i'm waiting for it to materialize but i'm not moving off of that core thesis because of just where nominal rates are affordability is down and the prices are down in the market right looking at case shiller yep well let's uh let's pivot a little bit let's go to to the labor market because it is so important it is part of the fed's dual mandate and it's been really strong right so the unemployment rates at the lowest level since 1969 right now there's 1.9 job openings for each unemployed individual and that's what Jerome Paul just keeps saying. Oh, the labor market's so tight. And this week we have a lot of big labor data releases. We got the jolts, we got the non-farm payrolls, ADP private employment numbers. They're all coming out this week, um, and it's been strong. But at the same time, the headlines you just see over and over again: layoffs, layoffs, layoffs. Uh, Meta just announced today that there's a second round of layoffs coming after they already cut 13% of their workforce a couple months ago. And so, Joe. How do you kind of grapple that? Like, at one point you say the labor market's really strong, and, and and the data seems to point that way, but the headlines are just painting this picture of doom, and and everyone's getting laid off. So, what, what's your take there? So, I think that the labor market is strong in certain subsets, right? What you've seen uh, over the last really year um, since the hiking cycle began is you've seen that the very uh, sensitive tech companies, those particularly sensitive to rates. Those were the ones who first had to transition to this period of cutting back, then layoffs. And a lot of the data shows that those folks, particularly, you know, you think of um, uh, your Googles, your, your Amazons, your bigger shops, the higher end jobs, those folks still got, um, by and large, some of those demographics showed up to 50% of the, the cohort that was laid off is still on severance. Um, so, so that's, that's not showing up in the data yet, right? They're still benefiting from those severance plans, but to your point about, you know, the, the, there are two job openings for every one applicant. If you look at under the hood at what those numbers show, they're largely in service level jobs, right? They're largely in the lowest end of the spectrum. So it's very difficult to get a waiter, right? It's very difficult to get uh, the sort of entry level employment jobs. Um, and those are creating some distortion in the data, whereas some of the more higher paying jobs, those are beginning to see some of the layoffs in, in tech and, and elsewhere. But it still remains relatively isolated uh, into those really yeah. interest rate specific companies and sensitive companies. So for me, I think the question is, how quickly does that broaden? Because I do think it does. I think it broadens this year. It broadens outside of tech and uh, rate sensitive companies. And uh, you're going to see, uh, I, I expect it, you know, to, to increase. I don't know, you know, if they're going to be able to, uh, I think one of the Fed governors was saying that they, they they wanted to get it by the end of the year to just under 4%. That was a target for unemployment. Um, generally, that's not historically how it works. Once you start down <laughs> that snowball down the hill, it uh, escalates pretty rapidly. So we'll see. Um, you know, to me, I still think it's narrowly focused. And I think that some of the job numbers really are deceptive into where, what, what industries those openings are in. Nick, anything to add there on the labor market? Uh, you know, on the labor market, I think that we look a lot at the headline unemployment number. But one of the numbers that I prefer to look at is the employment subcomponent of the ISM surveys. And right now, um, we're seeing that that is in expansion territory in services. And that's the a different services than what Joe is referring to. Joe's referring to like the um, uh, service staffs and those type of uh, lower income workers. But on ISM services, we're talking about non-manufacturing firms. Um, and so those types of firms, non-manufacturing firms are in expansion in terms of employment and manufacturing firms are slightly in contraction um, in, and, and have been actually for a few months. 
in terms of employment. So there is a dichotomy in the labor market. I tend to look at those surveys a little bit more than NFP, um, let's say, but, and I also am looking at ADP, ADP private employment numbers as well. Those have shown decent growth and sustained growth as well. So those are a few of the metrics I'll be watching uh, to confirm or deny, you know, the, the strength, ongoing strength in the labor market. Gotcha. One thing that I just like struggle with, I, it's just so crazy to me that you have the Federal Reserve chairman basically saying that he wants people to lose their jobs. And, and I know it's like part of their dual mandate and it's like at odds with each other, the inflation and the unemployment mandate, but I've never seen it so egregious where they're just like, this is what we want. Like, do you guys remember a time that they're so just blatant, like, hey, we, we need unemployment to go up? Or is this kind of new for you guys too? Well, certainly not in my lifetime, but um, you know, I think that the one thing they keep that keeps them up at night is this wage price spiral, right? And if they don't bring, you know, Powell would he say Powell would not acknowledge that he wants people to be unemployed. He'd phrase it in his uh, bureaucratic speak as that there's an imbalance in the labor market, softening, right? soft, well, yeah. Softening. I mean, there's there's this imbalance, um, and yeah. they, they, the wage price spiral. Uh, you know, we we often look at uh, inflation and sort of discount the. The, uh, psychological aspect of it, that if these prices just become entrenched, if expectations start to change and people just start demanding higher um, uh, salaries, that that, uh, you know, can become very sticky and hard to undo, right? That's how you get this wage price spiral where, you know, that's real sustained inflationary pressures. But the interesting thing about this uh, issues with consumer prices that we've been dealing with for the last year is that uh, although you've seen modest gains in wages, I don't think you've seen this sort of sustained wage price spiral, or at least evidence pointing to that, that would make me think at least that this won't eventually come back to to the norm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the prices come down, right? But the, the rate of change would would in fact decline. So for me, I, to answer your question, I, I don't think we've seen anything quite as pronounced as this in, in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime. Uh, but I think that uh, it definitely has them up concerned and keeping them up at night that this is, there's a potential for this, right? If things weren't yeah. to cool off and you got that wage price spiral, that could change the game. And by the way, I think that what Nick was talking about, you would see that reflected in uh, long-term rates. I mean, you would see that at the long end of the curve, and that's one of the reasons why the inversion has me less concerned that this is for for long term. Yeah, yeah, and Nick, in terms you? in terms of the the wages and the wage price spiral, um, what we're seeing is that to to your original question, Sam, which is, have we seen this type of blatant targeting of people getting fired? The truth of the matter is that CPI at 9% was a 40-year high. And so it it's almost natural to expect them to come up with once every 40-year type of rhetoric and even policy moves to combat that, right? We saw Powell doing his best Volcker impression, 75, 75, 75. I mean, like he, the tightening was so intense last year and that was in response to 9% inflation. And so he's that it's still, he, he, like Joe is saying the wage price spiral does still keep him up at night, even though metrics like the deep inversion of the yield curve don't confirm that in the market, the market can be wrong. The market, you know, thought that a pause was coming six months ago, then three months ago. And, um, you know, I even tended toward that camp because of my longer term expectations of disinflation and not going prices necessarily going down, but reverting to the mean, right? And, and it's just, it's taking longer. And so he has to introduce different type of rhetoric, like, hey, you know, more people need to lose their jobs for us to bring down demand. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a great point, man. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's pivot a little bit. Cause I want to, I want to talk about how the six month T bill, the yield is now around 5%. And if you look at the S and P 500 earnings yield, it's also around 5%. You know, it's the narrowest spread uh, since around 2000, 2001. And so there's like income in fixed income again, 
and the equity risk premium is is really expensive. And the and you know the bond yields are rising. They're kind of blaring these alarms, but they're kind of falling on deaf ears when it comes to the stock market. You know, it's been resilient. And so why are risk premiums and these indicators remaining optimistic in the face of these yield spikes um, and, and kind of this continuing hawkish rhetoric from the Fed? Like these stock valuations are still pretty high. And um, we've seen this kind of bear market rally. Uh, per- perhaps it's the beginning of a bull market, but we've seen this rally over the over the first quarter of 2023. And what do you guys make of it, um, given that the yields are high in the short end. Why wouldn't somebody just go into that instead of taking the risks and going into stocks? Well, I'll just state my bias at the beginning, which is I think that the equity market is a historically flawed metric for analyzing the real economy. And I think the credit markets give you far more information. Uh, you see very wild uh, volatility in the equity market that doesn't match the economic realities. And there's plenty of historical examples you can, can point to. But one thing that that makes a lot of sense to me, and I'll quote my, my green on this, because I think it, it is a compelling argument, is that an alternative way of looking at 2022 is to look at what effect on portfolio construction raising front-end rates does. When you look at the beginning of the year and the Fed, Fed moved to that aggressive, you know, uh, once in 40 year hiking cycle that Nick was just talking about, what you tend to see is you tend to see this sell off in bonds, right? Because of the hiked rates and that money has to go somewhere for rebalancing purposes. So through most of the year, you saw the sell off in bonds. What did that do? That pulled down the equity prices because you have to sell your, you had to sell your equities to buy your bonds to achieve the 60, 40 construction. And what that did, it, it caused this historically uh, uh, very negative of 40-60 portfolio, 60-40 portfolio results, right? The, the It's one of the worst years. I think uh, you'll know the stat probably off, off the top it's of your head. Sam, but Yeah, <laughs> in, in recorded history, whatever it is. Um, yeah, yeah. That That's fascinating to me how the, the, the rather than an economic slowdown, because uh, we didn't see one, right? We saw, you know, two... Um, uh, very modest negative prints in real terms, but still quite hot nominally, very tight labor market. You didn't see the typical GDI was positive the entire year. You didn't see the typical hallmarks of a recession last year, but you still saw this violent sell-off. And I think that largely uh, can be attributed uh, to those sort of natural passive rebalancing aspects, which is the dominant force in our markets today, these sort of uh, buy and hold investors with that balanced portfolio. Um, So what to answer your question here, like why are equities holding in? Um, I think Again, I can think that there are still real concerns in the bond market that can you see this, uh, what I would call a capitulation move, at least at the front end, where you see these rates spike and go higher. And is the risk in the bond market still there in the near term for the next three to six months, right? Until you get sort of the recessionary dynamics that Nick was talking about uh, middle to later part of this year, is it safer to hold equities, which at least the equities carry forward some pricing power? Right? They can transfer some of those costs to consumers with the higher inflation versus holding out in bonds. Um, so I think that that uh, may be a factor in play and why you know, the risk premiums where it's at in the equity market. When I think about the risk-free uh, you know, six-month T-bill yield at 5%, uh, there are a couple things that come to mind. Number one is that we will have a crowding out effect. There will be the marginal investor that says six-month T-bill at 5% is a great way to store my money and I'll figure out what to do at the end of the term or one year or two year, lock in that 5% yield. And that takes money out of, uh, let's say, a risk asset like the stock market and puts it into the the bond yield. And that is a a threat for the stock market uh, for sure looking going forward, especially this crowding out effect. However, stocks and Bitcoin too, both respond most importantly to global liquidity. And that's the regime that we've been in since 07. It's a liquidity driven machine. And so right now, or let's just say in 2022, you had some of the worst liquidity dynamics and one of the greatest liquidity contractions that we've ever seen because of how intense the stimulus had been. But if we look to what's happening this year, 
Yes, the Fed is still worried about inflation and hiking, and we have the ECB especially very worried, and their inflation metrics are actually peaking now while ours peaked last year. So you have the, the ECB going tighter, but the rest of the world is now actually coming away from the tightening and into a more uh, liquidity providing sort of um, stance. And I do think that the stock market, why is the stock market hanging in your question? I believe it's because the stock market is forward looking to better liquidity conditions over the next six to 24 months, not just what's going to happen in the next three months with the Fed or, gotcha. or, or that. And, and so when the curve is, again, back to the curve inversion, the curve in any curve inversion is a, is a pricing in of future rate cuts, just mathematically speaking. And so that path of rate cuts is a liquidity boost for the markets. Stocks, I believe, are looking forward to that uh, easing of liquidity conditions. Um, and that's something they couldn't see last year. Hence the, the real de- intense decline in stock prices. Hmm. Nick, do you, so, so ba- based on that comment, when you say they're forward looking, um, are they also forward looking to the, the likely recessionary dynamics you have, you know, facing us in the housing market? I mean, I, yeah. you think that that, what, what, what's your comment on that? Yes, and that's the tug of war that we talk about in the stock market right now is that, you know, on the one side you have liquid, like uh, empirically stocks rally on a Fed pause, but empirically stocks decline going into a recession and for the first few months of the recession. So those those two dynamics are there, Joe. Um, I'm right now reconciling it by thinking that the recession will be mild enough and not that we're in for a stock market rally, but that stocks can hang in or see modest declines. Remember, stocks are still above 10, 10% above their lows last year. So they're yeah. in a decent shape and they could actually give some of that back in a, in, in a recession and still not enter any crash formation because the expectation is for uh, boosted liquidity. So I'm not some raging stock bull here. And even when we look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is looking forward to uh, or is forward looking on global liquidity. So Bitcoin is not at 50,000 because we're not expecting all this global liquidity or that we're expecting some of it and macro will drive down risk prices. So there there's there's the two sides. And, you know, I have to you always have to balance what you think will dominate and assign probabilities too. So if your probability is, you know, 50 percent deep recession, and 50% shallow recession, let's say that that's your expectation, that the sum of those probabilities are going to spit out a stock market valuation for you. And I think that that probability distribution right now is balanced enough to not get, uh, you know, longer term investors to dump, but volatility exists at the margin, people are worried, we see that with all this choppy price action. Yeah, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's had a good 2023. I think on a risk-adjusted uh, return basis, it's the highest asset class um, out of everything. So it's been going well. But I think to your point, Nick, it's like a sponge of global liquidity, right? So uh, we'll see if that continues moving forward. Um, Joe, let's talk. Let's talk lawyer stuff. <laughs> I yeah. got you here. I got you here. Boring old um, lawyer I'm, stuff. Yeah. yeah, let's. There's so many lawsuits. There's so many enforcement actions, bankruptcy proceedings, regulatory developments uh, to start 2023. I mean, it's hard to keep track as an analyst. And and now that we have you here, I want to ask some questions. Um, let's start. Let's start with Grayscale. Um, and what's going on with their lawsuit uh, with the SEC. But also just yesterday, FTX uh, just sued them. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I don't know if you have comments, uh, if you could just more broadly, uh, what you're thinking around what's going on at Grayscale. Uh, nothing directly on Grayscale. Well, let's start with the the suit, if we can, if that's okay with you. Uh, oh, yeah, so they, of course. They had the oral arguments today uh, regarding Grayscale's effort uh, to get a reversal of the SEC order uh, denying approval for the spot ETF. And um, it was kind of an interesting back and forth. Um, they had uh, very prominent litigators representing uh, 
the, the Grayscale argue on behalf of Grayscale against the SEC, um, and the judges asked some very pointed questions. As a general rule, you should never read too much into oral argument because uh, judges, in a lot of respects, uh, you know, they may uh, the reading reading which way they're leaning based on the questioning is a dangerous proposition. And many times, where you face very vigorous questioning, and really what they're trying to do at that point is maybe convince one of their colleagues who may be swayed uh, one way or the other. But it's not necessarily an indication of uh, you know which way they're leaning. So always take it with a, um, a grain of salt how the argument goes. But in any event, the the whole basis for the suit filed by Grayscale is they're saying that this denial of the spot ETF is arbitrary and capricious, and the basis for the arbitrary and capricious rule is the approval actually of the futures uh, ETF. They say it makes no sense to approve a futures ETF and not offer a spot ETF product um, because of the fact that these markets are so intertwined. One of the most interesting back and forth, though, uh, was that there was an argument um, that was actually cited that in the petition for uh, in the registration statement where Grayscale filed uh, arguing that the spot should be approved, they were uh, effectively saying that the spot market, okay, is immune from any sort of uh, 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 manipulation or fraud, given that you had the futures entity in place, that the futures entity would protect it. And they're saying, SEC, you should approve this because the futures is is well-regulated, that there's surveillance sharing agreements, that the exchange of the CME is you know preeminent exchange in the world, and you have nothing to fear because the futures is going to influence the spot. They seem to take the opposite approach in this particular hearing today, saying, oh, no, 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 the spot market uh, can potentially manipulate the futures market. And because the spot market can manipulate the futures market, it's arbitrary and capricious that they're not letting them both go go forward. So that was kind of an interesting back and forth That's from uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, having to pivot your argument on uh, on appeal is never a fun spot to be in. Um, but really, there was a long, uh, long back and forth about really uh, what leads what, right? In this market, we talk about this quite a bit in, in many markets, not just Bitcoin. What leads? Is it spot or is it futures that lead? And the consistent retort from the SEC uh, again and again was that, listen, the burden is on the applicant. The burden is on grayscale to show that the spot market okay, is not uh, sufficiently manipulated and that the futures market the surveillance sharing agreement in the futures market can protect against spot market manipulation. Um, that was the whole back and forth, and they kept repeating on, on and on about how Grayscale has that burden. They have not shown it. Um, they actually, uh, one of the judge, judges um, uh, asked specifically a question about, well, what would they need to show? What would be uh, the information that you would require them to show? And they went back to their normal frame. They want uh, you know surveillance sharing agreements with markets of sufficient size, or they want to display this uh, relationship, a, a lead lag analysis, effectively is what they called it, where you could show that efforts to manipulate the futures pricing, or excuse me, efforts to manipulate the, the spot pricing would uh, be protected against or mitigated against by the regulation and surveillance of the futures market. Um, so we'll see yeah. uh, you know, where, where we go with this. Uh, again, dangerous to read anything too much into oral argument, but a fascinating discussion of, you know, from an economic perspective of the dynamics between a futures market and a spot market. And really, if there's potential in the futures market, does that mean the spot market is efficiently uh, protected against that manipulation? It's interesting because I remember Fidelity did a lead lag analysis when they were trying to get their ETF approved and they found right. that the futures market led it. Um, obviously, they kind of wanted that because they want their ETF approved as well. Uh, but in the comments too, the recent comments, I think from the SEC, they did like 18 of these things. And what they found was it was inconclusive, which I thought was interesting right. um, because it, it, obviously they want to say the opposite. Um, it was another interesting... Um, yeah, go on, sorry. Go on. Another interesting aspect of it is that uh, one of the questions that was posed to the lawyer for the SEC was, well, you know, isn't the role of the SEC to prevent and mitigate fraud in market manipulation? And the SEC lawyer kind of dodged for a little bit and eventually answered that saying, well, no, really one interpretation or our interpretation of the Exchange Act is not necessarily that the SEC has a role of mitigating or, or preventing fraud. It's really, we want a key role in surveilling fraud. 
right? We want to be able to detect where there's fraud and then bring uh, effective um, enforcement actions or, you know, somehow uh, try to uh, seek out who is manipulating, right? Bring them to justice. It's not necessarily that we're approving this structure, this vehicle, the ETP, based on the idea that, well, we're only going to approve it if it, it prevents any fraud in this. No, we want to know if we approve this, will there be regulators who can detect the fraud? It's a kind of interesting, uh, you know, view and interpretation of the Exchange Act. I mean, I kind of sympathize with Grayscale's argument because I feel like these futures products do track the underlying spot market that they say is manipulated. Like, why would once it a day. ETF? Once a day. They have the reference once rate once a day. And that came up actually during the hearing today. They said, well, look, uh, even if there's potential for manipulating the, because they have this Bitcoin reference rate. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. It's like basically yeah, yeah. A, a combination of various different exchanges. And they say that they'll they'll have the reference rate, but it really only matters once a day. And the during the day, intraday, there's no evidence that they put forward in the record that the intraday pricing is somehow causally impacted by the spot price. In fact, they, they said, you know, they, they quote the old uh, adage that correlation is not causation simply because the spot market and the futures market move together. That is not conclusive evidence that the spot market uh, is, is causally related to the, the futures market pricing on an mm-hmm. intraday basis, at least. Sounds like lawyer talk. <laughs> it is. It actually is. I, yeah. Um, Nick, I don't know if you have any comments about just the ETF in general. I know it's been like years and years and years of speculation over an ETF. Um, what do you think would even happen if an ETF was approved? I don't, like, would it? It would. I would think it would add a lot of flows into into the ETF, and then it would help the price of Bitcoin. I, that's part of the reason why I think maybe they don't want to approve it. Um, I think it would break records the first day, but I don't know what you think. Yeah, it definitely would. We've seen that uh, Bitcoin ETFs or exchange traded products have broken records in other jurisdictions on their first day. Um, you know, Canada, Canada uh, specifically. Yeah. But in the end, I you know, aside from the the proceedings which Joe is more positioned to speak on, I think that from a jurisdictional arbitrage perspective, the U.S. will eventually come around because of just overall capital flows and that that that's actually a very powerful driving force in bitcoin itself is that the activity will flow to where it's legal and if we want exchange traded products of spot bitcoin we will allocate to countries that allow that uh, type of activity to to take place so i do eventually believe that regulators will come around um and that's my longer term outlook and that it would be generally good for longer term adoption, but who knows what that could do to the short term price, right? There might be a buy the rumor, yeah. sell the fact, of course. Totally, totally. No, I think that's right. I mean, for American competitiveness, I mean, the the ProShares ETF out of the Toronto Stock Exchange, yeah, it, it broke all these records, got all these volumes that could have been in the United States, uh, but you nope, know, nope. And um Joe, I just throw it back to you one more time. Is there's so many things going on in the regulatory space around Bitcoin and, and the crypto, you know, broader crypto markets or industry? And w- is there a case that you're looking at that maybe not a lot of people are looking at that you think has more broader implications that you just find interesting that maybe isn't getting all the headlines? Yeah. So there's. Uh, I'll just state at the outset that there are not only yes, there's a flurry of civil litigation that's starting right outside of the SEC. Lit- trial lawyers and other um, smart lawyers are filing suits left and right. Uh, some of uh, the suits that uh, I'm involved with are still coming through the pipeline, but you'll, you're going to see this continued flurry of litigation activity over the next six months. Um, everyone I talk to seems to be teeing up uh, litigation across the board. Um, and the SEC is, is included in that. I think the way to, to look at this is that Prior to the collapse of FTX, there was hope 
um, that maybe we can get some new legislation through the Congress. Maybe there could be a joint bipartisan bill to get a hold of this industry. Obviously, we all know that uh, FTX was spending tons of money trying to lobby Congress and get some sort of pro-crypto legislation through. FTX collapses, and then I think many lawmakers threw up their hands. They're saying, uh, with the exception of stable coins, which maybe there's some agreement on, we don't want to touch this industry. We want to let the CFTC and the SEC take care of this, do what they ever what they need to do from an enforcement action. And we're not going to disturb this because of the influence that was coming in through the crypto lobbying groups. So. I think that you saw that in the end of the year where you got the green light to file many enforcement actions, and I expect that to continue rapidly throughout the remainder of the year. Um, But to answer your direct question, um, there's no one particular suit. Uh, There there are a few that I'm just going to mention, one of which is this Dapper Lab suit, which uh, involves the the NBA Top Shots. And and the key thing uh, for me in that, and I want folks to walk away from, is that in the context of these NFT products, the judge said that I, and a motion to dismiss that these things are plausible securities, right? Applying a Howey analysis, he said they're plausible securities. It doesn't mean that they necessarily are, but it means that there's enough to go forward with litigation. And in my world, that is huge, right? If you cannot knock out a case at a motion to dismiss phase, if you can't say there's no plausible way that this case can move forward, that means that many providers, okay, uh, of uh, NFTs launching these types of uh, you know assets, whatever you want to call them, they can face scrutiny from the federal court system, and that any litigant, any individual or class that suffered a significant loss can file a suit. And as you know, uh, in litigation, getting past a motion to dismiss and getting to discovery. That is massive. That means you get to depose folks. You get to issue interrogatories. You get to do briefing. It gets extremely expensive, and it is somewhat of a deterrent, I think, from the private sector for those that want to think about launching these tokens. If you know that there's a reasonable probability you're going to face a civil suit if somebody loses money and you could have to spend you know, hundreds, if not millions of dollars on legal fees defending you, that may p- make people think twice. Or... Uh, conversely, you might think that's just the cost of doing business. We're going to be, you know, built into the fact that if we're launching these things, we should expect that we're going to get sued from investors who suffer losses and we're going to have to fight, fight them and defend them. Um, but at least it's I, what I do think is interesting is that it's different from prior years and even prior cycles where I think many lawyers, um, perhaps they were confused about the regulatory status. They're confused about, you know, how these things could be interpreted. And they were a little bit more gun shy to file litigation in the ICO bubble and, and elsewhere. Now, I think, you know, the, the, the civil attorneys have come in the, in the absence of a uh, of the SEC being much more aggressive, which they are as well, uh, they're going to step into the void and try to file a lot of litigation. So um, I definitely think there's a growing space for crypto litigators. It's not uh, it's not going yeah. away anytime soon. It's a bull market for, yes. for lawyers. <laughs> the fair Absolutely. Market. Bull market. Uh, for sure. Well, thanks for that color. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, let's throw it to Nick. Let's throw something that Nick is a, a you know, has a lot of expertise in, which is uh, the Lightning Network, man. Like I... I remember you wrote this piece, the lightning reference rate piece that you wrote. Was that like five years ago now? It's crazy. It but, was. Um, it was five years yeah, ago. Yeah, man. I remember reading that and being like, wow, because you kind of brought up this idea of you know lightning enabling a new risk-free rate. And I don't know if you just saw this, but Breeze launched something recently. Um, it's like an open lightning service uh, provider model where third-party providers can share liquidity and it allows lightning to scale more easily. And that... Um, when you combine that with their other product, the Breeze SDK, which enables developers to integrate with Lightning very easily without any technical expertise, you're starting to see the tools that are enabling Lightning to scale and maybe make your vision a reality, which is really cool, man, because I, I want to read a little like excerpt from this blog. It says, through Lightning service providers, Lightning can generate yield on Bitcoin holdings without transferring custody, without staking Nothing is being securitized. No one is holding, gambling, or losing anyone else's money. It means to generate returns on Bitcoin today, not just locking it up and hoping that the number goes up, yield with full sovereignty and full custody. This is the holy grail of crypto, not just even Bitcoin. And so, Nick, it's like we're watching your what you foresaw years ago come to fruition. Like, what are your what are your thoughts here? Yes, it's 
it's incredible to watch and um a really cool a really cool thing that happened uh a, a month or so ago i was teaching a bitcoin elective at usc marshall school of business where i'm a finance professor and I was, i'm teaching this elective for the first time and i got to the lightning network section of the course and i explained lightning network and then i uh, i assigned a paper written by river uh river financial wrote a, a great paper yeah. at the end of last year called i believe it's called the fourth insights S- from sam, the fourth sam fourth waters largest, i think uh, right? yeah insights yeah, from I the fourth that. largest node right on the lightning network and mm-hmm. in the section on uh their yield right they put like an apy in there and they said you know less than 100 basis points i believe it was 85 basis points uh and then i got to explain to my students that this was my idea you know five years ago and then i showed them the paper that i wrote and i said look it's it's coming true people are writing about this now and um the i the idea was always intended to inspire people to think about lightning network really in this context uh the power of yield without counterparty uh forfeiture is unprecedented in the financial construct in order to earn money in the past you have always had to relinquish that money either in an equity form or in a loan form right? And you have to give away that money. And in Lightning, you can earn money without giving the money, right? You assign the money to a liquidity network secured by smart contracts, secured by your own Bitcoin node. And uh, it really is truly unprecedented. I can't wait to see what is next from Lightning. But Lightning now has to be taught within Bitcoin 101. It's part of my mission as an educator. Um, Lightning Network education must be folded in to Bitcoin first principles to uh, to understand and explain Bitcoin's role in our society, Bitcoin's role in international finance, Bitcoin and Lightning Network's role in the functioning of a payments network, uh, Lightning's role in Bitcoin becoming a capital market. And uh, having an interest rate complex within it, which Bitcoin already does, uh, but it's pretty uh, decentralized, probably for for the good. But as Lightning Network grows, we will see more people publish their yield that they're earning through Lightning. And I do hope and believe that one day that yield will be recognized on a global basis as one of of the risk-free benchmarks or a benchmark or a reference rate for other capital market activity. It's crazy to think about, honestly, but it's happening and, and it just takes the tools to do it. And that's like props to Breeze for building this stuff. Um, Joe, I've never even like, what are your thoughts on Lightning? Like, are you, I mean, obviously you're a big Bitcoin bull and yeah. how have you viewed Lightning the last couple of years, like the, the growth that we've seen? Uh, my general thoughts are there are a few things more exciting right now going on in Bitcoin than Lightning and the development surrounding it. And what what, what I keep trying to reconcile internally is why you haven't seen uh, more capital allocation to this. Um, you know, what I, I'm trying to picture ahead. You know, where where does Lightning go from here? And as Nick was talking, I, I, I you know thinking you know early days i have some clients that have uh, you know entered into agreements and, and licenses for you know providing liquidity to various different entities and providing their bitcoin and i'm wondering you know how professionalized that becomes in the next you know several years where they become major companies that are providing liquidity love to get nick's nick's thoughts on that and you know similar to the mining space right like do we sort of still have this sort of mostly retail dominated aspect of lightning now but five ten years from now it gets more uh, professionalized and and that's going to be really exciting right Uh, you do have some uh, initial overtures from you know cash app and others integrating lightning but to be honest i'm not quite sure how the liquidity works with that sort of uh with with cash app and those entities but really fascinating i mean like i said far there are very few things uh, as exciting as as lightning right now in bitcoin you know uh if we think about how lightning network if i think about how lightning network will grow 
I look at the number of payments going through the Lightning Network, the amount of you know aggregate fees generated. The aggregate fees generated going up comes from usage. So it's still at the core has to come from bootstrapped usage, just like Bitcoin grew because more people decided to download a node, mine Bitcoin, or hold Bitcoin, right? Hodling is one of the oldest use cases, but the more people that came on it boosts the network effect. So as Lightning Network gets more users, more transactions, aggregate fees will go up. This will bring entrance to the market to provide liquidity. We just saw Dorsey and Block announce dedicated Bitcoin liquidity to the Lightning Network that was in previously, we assume, to be in cold storage or held in an offline situation. Now it's online and connected with the Lightning Network in smart contracts. They don't have to forfeit the custody, but they can help provide liquidity and just be another player. And I do believe, to answer Joe's question, that you will see dominant nodes. This doesn't mean Lightning becomes centralized. It just means that you will have dominant liquidity players that do drive the fee market down to where the marginal cost of production is if you roll in a profitability factor, and that will set the average rate. And you will still have the ability to route around those nodes, but it'll probably be more expensive. But you will have large, just like we have large dealers in the treasury market, that happens through a combination of free market and um, corporate favoritism. In Bitcoin and Lightning Network, you won't have the corporate favoritism, but you'll still have the free market dynamics that um, basically allow winners to win and you know take market share um, because they're good at it because they drive down the cost. Um, and it's a multi-year time horizon. I never thought that Lightning would come and fix every issue and be the dominant force in in five years. And um, it's just going to take time, just like Bitcoin is taking time. But to bring it back to my previous point, Lightning is part of Bitcoin 101 now. It wasn't the what do you case think, five Nick years is ago. Sorry, Nick. What do, what do you think are the biggest barriers or challenges for Lightning right now? Is it just liquidity? No, it's not even liquidity. It's uh, it's the actual usage, right? Because liquidity is actually, people are using Lightning Network. Like I use Lightning Network. I don't have any problem sending, um, you know, a couple hundred bucks through Lightning Network. And I know that transactions are reaching $1,000 really without much of a problem in Lightning Network. So people are, they don't, liquidity is not a barrier. The, the barrier is the usage itself, right? We have approximately 5,000 Bitcoin, or I know, you know, let's call it 6,000 Bitcoin, right? That's less than $150 million in total that are in the network and, and using it. And if you, you know, scale that up to a percentage of the total Bitcoin supply, it's far less than 1% of the size of Bitcoin, right? 1% of Bitcoin right now would be $4 billion. And one-tenth of 1% would be $400 million. So we're not even close to that in total Lightning Network, just capital. And that's yeah, not a constraint. It's not, it's, it's capacity. That's not, that's not a constraint. That's actually due to the amount of usage and the capacity will grow as usage grows. So really it's adoption. It's not necessarily a barrier. It, um, uh, you know, that's like a headwind, but it's that will the tailwind continue to drive that growth? And I believe Lightning's UX, the experience of using it will drive that growth. I use Lightning almost uniformly. And I know that people that use Bitcoin are using Lightning with each other because of how much better it is than regular Bitcoin as an experience. So I believe all that will continue to drive the adoption. Yeah, I think everything you just said and then just the complexity of it still takes a technical person to know how to run a lightning service, like be a lightning service provider, know how to open all the necessary channels with the right nodes and keep them balanced. So I think just as tools get developed, uh, that'll help as well, just as we scale. But like you said, it's a multi-year even multi-decade projects that that we're building out here, just like Bitcoin. So 
very exciting time, guys. And uh, this was a great conversation. Covered a lot of things. Um, really appreciate you guys coming on the show. Um, where where can listeners find you guys? Because I think everyone should should follow your work, whether it's at the Bitcoin layer or on social media. So where, where can people find you? So I'm I'm at Joe Carlosari on Twitter, uh, just at and first name, last name. You can also Google my name. My firm pops up. Uh, if you have a litigated dispute uh, that is at all related to crypto licensing, commercial disputes among uh, minors, I represent all of those. So uh, happy to help or find somebody who can help you. And you can find me, uh, Nick Batia, and all of my content at thebitcoinlayer.com, at thebitcoinlayer on Twitter and uh, YouTube as well. And definitely go subscribe to our newsletter, um, which is available at thebitcoinlayer.com slash subscribe. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. Uh, Really enjoyed talking to you and have a wonderful day, okay? Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Jeff. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects, as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com slash private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account, like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today.